All right, so we're in a series called Summer Hacks. You guys probably know that. We're studying God's wisdom for our lives. Uh, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't necessarily want to reduce God's wisdom to a summer hack, uh, but I do think that there is a lot in what God offers us that helps us avoid the detours, the distractions, and the destructions that we create in our own lives. And I told you I'd give you a, a summer hack each week, and we've been having a lot of fun with pool noodles, so I want to show you another thing you can do uh, with a pool noodle just for the fun of it. Take a, take a pool noodle, shave the end off, right? Get a little piece of pool noodle. You ever have that issue where doors slam in the house? You know, you've got that one door that slams really loudly, or maybe... Your, you know those, what do they call those, you know the little door stopper things? I guess door stopper would be, you know, the little bumpers, you know. Sometimes those, uh, like your, the little springy thing gets bent or something. You need something temporary as a door stopper. Well, just check this out. You just cut a slit in one end of a, one side of a pool noodle after you've cut the end off. And you put it up here and uh, it acts actually as a pretty good door stopper. I tested it. This morning, in fact, some of you went in and out through that bathroom door today and didn't even notice it's there. But there's a little pink thing uh, up high on the door, and it made no sound at all when the door closed today. So, uh, summer hacks. Who knew? Who knew? Uh, Bill or somebody said to me earlier, like, man, or maybe it was Mike, like, it's crazy where you find this stuff. I'm like, Google's an amazing thing. (laughs) Right? Right? I didn't invent this. I'm not that smart, I suppose. So I'm certainly glad uh, that you're studying the Bible with us today. I think that's far more important than anything we can do with a pool noodle. If you have your Bibles, you might open it with me to James chapter 3. A lot of this series has been rooted in James chapter 3 as we think about God's wisdom. And so I just want to read these verses to us again as a foundation for what we talk about today. Today we're going to talk about God's wisdom for our relationships And I think it's important to recognize that that God knows what he's talking about in the relational world because he created man and woman in his image, right? That we were created for relationship. We were created truly for community, not just community with God, but community with each other. So James 3 says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, even demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, and then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, full of good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. I don't know about you, but I think about my relationships. Some of them are relationships that I have with you. Some of them are relationships, obviously, I have with my family, relationships that I have with friends. They're spread out all over the country. Relationships that I have just generally in this life, I need more of God's wisdom, and for that matter, more of God's grace. So I want to give you a couple of observations about this text and, and what it's saying relationally. 
First, I would note for you just right out of the gate, this isn't blanks to fill in, but I just want you to see how the text relates. There's some stuff to not be, and there's some character qualities to be. Right? That seems very obvious, doesn't it? That there's a very clear, don't be full of bitter envy. Don't be full of selfish ambition. Right? These are demonic in origin. Right? Disorder, every evil practice is what you end up with. If you want your relationships to be full of disorder and every evil practice, then go for it. A bitter envy and selfish ambition makes sense. But if you don't want disorder in every evil practice, these are things to avoid. This makes sense, doesn't it? Right? We avoid bitter envy, we avoid selfish ambition, which <clears throat> I still got some of that. You still got some of that? Anytime we play the comparison game, you know? I don't look that good anymore. I never looked that good. What happened to my hair? How do they still have hair? They're the same age as me. You know, anytime we play that game, we're in the realm of envy. Selfish ambition? I mean, you could say at some level that the core of sin could be described as selfish ambition. In the middle of the word sin is the letter I, right? That... that that, that, that so much of that is all about me. It says, avoid this way of life. And then it gives us these character qualities, right? That pure and humble and peace-loving and considerate and submissive and full of mercy and good fruit and impartial and sincere and peacemakers. And it's saying, here are some things to be. So there's a don't be and there's a to be. Not to be or not to be. Don't be, to be. You got it? All right, so just notice that. The other thing I want you to notice about these character qualities that it says to be is that some of them are inner qualities and some of them are outer qualities. Some of them are very much about what is inside of you, pure. And this verse doesn't have it, but the previous verse had humble. Right? This is about something is going on inside of you, independent of the relationship. And to some degree or another, you could say that about all of these things. But many of these are relational qualities. Peace-loving, considerate, submissive, right? full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere. He's giving us a picture of what we should be. So there's what to avoid, what to embrace, and there's... This very clear sense that what I should embrace needs to be God-like, Jesus-like. If I want the fruit of wisdom in my relationships. It's interesting to me when you study the book of James. The book of James tends to very much parallel two other places in our Bible. In fact, some scholars would suggest that the book of James is a collection of... Um, Sermons, if you will. Or we could say that, that stuff that James used in sermons ended up in the letter, if that would make any sense. That James is writing a letter, but he's, he's drawing from something he has talked about before. And scholars would look at this and say, really, if you look at your Bibles, and I would highly suggest you do this study sometimes, read the book of James with the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount in one hand, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, 
and Proverbs on the other. Because the parallels between the Sermon on the Mount, Proverbs, and the book of James in the New Testament are numerous. I don't have time to get into all of them today, but it's fascinating to see how that works. And this is why the Bible works, because but so much of the Bible is filling in the gaps for what other parts of the Bible say. So the book of Proverbs talks about friendship as well, relationships. And there are many verses we'll look at today, but I just want to give you a couple before we uh, start filling in blanks uh, in our outline. Uh, Proverbs 17, verse 27 and 28. says, The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint. And that's important to catch. Um, simply because so much of our relationship is about how we communicate with each other. And that's such an important subject. I'm going to come back to it in a couple of weeks. The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint, and whoever has understanding is even-tempered. When we first studied this passage in James a couple of, four or five weeks ago now, I used even-tempered to describe several of these peace-loving type qualities. These are the two things, Proverbs and James, working together. Whoever has understanding is even-tempered. Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongue. In my case, I uh, sometimes let my mouth get ahead of me. And I remove all doubt about whether I'm being foolish or not. Because it turns out, as the book of James says, right before this passage actually, that the tongue is very, very difficult to master. That we say things all the time. That we go, oops, here, take it off. Can I just put that back in? No? <laughs> you ever tried to put your toothpaste back in the tube? Right? I mean, for a tiny little bit, you squeeze toothpaste all over the table, try to put it back in the tube. It's not working. Proverbs 15, verse 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So again, we're describing a lot of these same qualities. And it's very clear to me that Proverbs lines perfectly with what the book of James is saying. And again, I would catch for you that stirring up anger is such an easy human thing to do when selfish ambition and bitter envy are what's driving our hearts. And that's so important that I want to come back in a few weeks and talk about tension and conflict and how to do... Because conflict's not avoidable. So how do we do conflict in a way that's still God-honoring? But to look at these verses today and focus in on our relationships, I want to make this point to you. That I become, and this is the one thing that today is about, I become more like Jesus and my relationships are better when I'm less reactive and more gracious. I become more like Jesus when I'm less reactive and more gracious and my relationships are better when I'm less reactive and more gracious. Think about the last thing that went south in one of your relationships and think about how reactive you were in that situation. 
whether it was something the boss said to you at work or it was something a friend said that was hard to hear or it was something a spouse or a family member said that called you out. How easy is it to be hyper-reactive to everything? But then by being hyper-reactive and feeling all the feels that go along with that and then not filtering our mouth and letting our mouth just spew reactivity... In a sense, you could say that that becomes, uh, I suppose, like nuclear reactivity. Uncontained, it becomes very toxic, right? I become more like Jesus. My relationships are better when I'm less reactive and I'm more gracious. Marcy, uh, uh, several years ago, worked uh, for a place, and uh, one of the doctors she worked with I uh, taught her a phrase that I've picked up and uh, that I've taught you before that I, that I really, really like. He, he would say, be personable, but don't take things personally. Like That's maturity. To be able to still be personable with people, relational with people, but not take things personally. Soft heart, but thick-skinned. We often are the opposite. Thin-skinned, hard heart. If I wanted my relationships to honor Jesus and become more like Jesus, again, just to be clear about what this is saying to us, there are really two big headlines for our relationships. Two big headlines for friendships, if you will. But these apply to any of our relationships. All right, There's a warning and there's some encouragement. So I want to give you the warning first. And, and here's the first of the big headlines. It, it's a caution. It's, it's a warning, if you will. The caution here from Proverbs is to choose my friends carefully. To choose my friends carefully. Now, at some level, when we think about Jesus, Jesus loves, Jesus loves everybody, right? And so we read our Bibles and we go, well, then I'm called to love everybody. Because I'm supposed to love who Jesus loves. So I'm called to love everybody, right? Does this make sense? You follow me? Does that mean that we're supposed to be like best friends with everybody? Right? That our deepest, most intimate relationships are for every human being on the planet? Because Proverbs comes along and tells us the same thing James is saying. James is saying, don't let bitter envy and selfish ambition drive your hearts. But that's also pretty good advice for how to choose friends, if you think about it. Because if your best friends are people who, they're full of bitter envy, they're full of selfish ambition, what are you going to become? Right? We become like those we hang out with, right? Right? In fact, that's exactly what Proverbs tells us. Proverbs 13, verse 20, He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Proverbs 12, 26, The righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. It's a simple idea, but it's not always followed and put into practice. The Bible tells us to choose our friends with great care. In fact, the word cautious comes from a word uh, 
be cautious. A righteous man is cautious in friendship. It comes from a verb that means to, to be examined, to have spied out. So when it comes to friendship, we're to be an investigator, an examiner, a, a spy who gathers intelligence. Now, let me be I'm, I'm not saying go spy on your friends. But I am saying as you choose friends and those you're going to let into the deepest place of your life, there has to be some wisdom about who gets in and who's out. Even when you look at Jesus, just before he called the disciples to follow him, those whom he would end up designating apostles, he spent time in prayer about who that should be. And there were only certain people he called to do so. Of course, like Jesus, you should also expect, like, I'd like to be able to choose my friends greatly and perfectly, and I'd like to be able to have a life where, you know, there's, there's, my friends are always faithful, and my friends are always uh, encouraging, and my friends are always gracious, and my friends are always, you know, <laughs> got my back. Yeah, how'd that work out for Jesus? Right, he's betrayed by one of the twelve. He was abandoned by all of the twelve. And one whom some people might call one of Jesus' best friends yelled, I swear, I don't know the man. After Jesus was arrested. You know, it's interesting to me that the Bible on one hand will tell us to avoid certain people and on the other hand will tell us to love everyone. Because sometimes when I teach about loving everyone, someone will come to me and they'll say, well, that doesn't, are you saying that I have to trust everyone? No. No, love and trust are two different things. It's like forgiveness and trust. Am I, am I commanded to forgive even the deepest of hurts? Yes. Am I commanded to trust that person again? No. And so there is a very real sense, I think, both in this passage in James and in the book of Proverbs, where we can talk about there being a good place for a concept that modern writers would call boundaries. Right? Where we say that there are certain boundaries in our relationships that shouldn't be violated. This makes some sense, doesn't it? Right? That when a person continually avoids, uh, continually violates your trust, that this becomes someone to avoid relationally. In fact, the book of Proverbs outlines four or five categories of people to avoid. The book of Proverbs tells us to avoid selfish people, an unfriendly man, Proverbs 18.1, an unfriendly man pursues selfish ends. He defies all sound judgment. Uh, Proverbs tells us to avoid the easily angered person. Do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. The Bible tells us to avoid the selfish, the hothead, the person bent on evil. It tells us to avoid the foolish. I mean, if you read Proverbs straight through, you get the sense, almost like it's just repeating itself over and over and over. Avoid the foolish, avoid the foolish. And it tells us to avoid the adulterer. That there is a very clear sense that there is a place in the Christian life to say, if you're going to live 
selfish ambition, bitter envy, and that's going to define who you are, then I'm going to love you, but that doesn't mean that I'm called to trust you in those deeper intimate ways that happen in friendship. So it's very clear here. There's this caution, right? Choose my friends carefully. Those who walk with the wise become wise. Those who walk with the foolish become foolish. Who do you walk with? Who do you hang out with? It's not only a warning or a caution, but an encouragement. And so the second big headline, I think really obvious, not only in the book of James, but in the book of Proverbs, is to be grateful. Be grateful. Yes, be grateful. But be graceful just as Jesus is graceful in my relationships. That I need the character qualities that Jesus has. Be graceful just as Jesus is graceful in my relationships. I mean, this is my roundabout way of saying, you know, what would Jesus do in your relationships? Or, or be more like Jesus, right? I, it, 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 is it very difficult to look into your own life and find moments where you weren't very Jesus-y and then to equate that moment with oops or I regret that? In fact, bless you. Thank you, Craig. I would bet that some of your deepest regrets in this life, when you look back through your life, were moments where you weren't very graceful. So James describes the character qualities as pure, as humble, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, sincere, peacemakers who sow peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. At some level, I would just ask you, who, who exactly is this describing? If you were to put my picture up and say, hey, is that a description of Brian? Some of you might say yes. And some of you might say not always. <laughs> and we don't really have a picture of Jesus. You do know that, right? Right? There were no cameras back then. We, we also, they, they, they weren't painting portraits of Jesus back then. So, you know, the portraits you see from four or 500 years ago where he's a blonde white guy, looks like me with long hair and a little beard and some sandals. Yeah, he didn't look like that. But if I put the picture of Jesus here, whatever Jesus looked like, actually, and if we all knew that's Jesus Christ, this would describe him perfectly. It might describe me on my best day. It would describe Jesus every day. So the question really becomes, as a Christ follower, does Jesus need to be more like me, or do I need to be more like Jesus? You know, the book of Proverbs tells us a lot of things about friendship. Proverbs 18, 24 says, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. 
who is the friend that sticks closer than a brother? Proverbs 20, verse 6. Many claim to have unfailing love, but a faithful person who can find. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Remember, remember Jesus' words with the disciples like in those last days? And he said, I, I have called you friends. We're often consumed in this world with finding friends, but you notice how easily that we forget, we put the emphasis on finding them, not on being the right kind of friend. Right? If you will, if you will put most of your energy into being the right kind of friend, I think you find that, that you will have friends. This is a bit like dating, if you will. I'm not saying you confuse the two things, dating and friendship. Our world does that all the time these days, the whole friends with benefits phenomenon. But in the dating world, we're often consumed with finding the right person. But a lot of God's wisdom is about being the right person. And knowing that when we're being the right person, we will find them in time. I think friendship is much the same way. If we'll focus on being the right kind of friend, if we'll pursue the character qualities that we would all look for in a great friend, and frankly, the character qualities that Jesus exemplifies, I think that we will find relationships. What becomes the challenge is that it's easy, easy, easy to do the opposite of what I said back here in the one thing. It's easy to be more reactive and less gracious. And it's easy to end up with hard hearts and thick skin when it comes to people. Because people will disappoint you. Sometimes couples, you know, come to me in marriage counseling and... There's this sense of like, you know, but they've let me down or they've disappointed me or they. What did you expect exactly? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, sickness and in health. The reality is we will disappoint one another. I'm not excusing it. But I am saying that what is easy to do in our lives when we're disappointed by people we trust is that our tendency is to harden our heart a little more and let someone in a little less next time and live a little more reactive to avoid the pain that comes from letting someone in and getting burned. And what that becomes is a life with real loneliness what that becomes is a life where we're isolated by choice from other people. And eventually we begin to think, I don't know why I don't have any friends, except that I'm hyper-reactive, except that I've got a hard heart, and except that I don't trust anybody. God does the exact opposite with us, by the way. Loves us when we don't deserve it draws us into His love when it's not something we deserve, transforms us, and then puts us in relationship with one another 
to work on practicing his kind of love. You know that relationship with one another where we practice his kind of love? You know what we call that? Church. We're just practicing. It's like my doctor says he's practicing medicine. When I had my back surgery a lot of years ago, I asked the surgeon straight up, are you still practicing or do you have this one down? Like, it, this isn't one of your first five, right? I just want to know before you, before you cut into me, start messing with those nerves that you've... Reality is, doctors are all wounded healers just like you and I. And the reality is, we're all practicing when it comes to our friendships and our relationships. So how do we become less reactive? How do we live more gracious? I'm going to give you four practical ideas that come right out of this text in James. I just want to define a couple of these terms and bring us right back to where we started. How can I be the kind of friend that everyone wants to befriend? What kind of friend should I be? And how can my, my way of relating to people look more like Jesus? I'm going to give you four qualities that model our relationships after Jesus. Okay, number one, be selfless in my motives. Selfless in my motives. When I gave uh, the outline uh, this week in the office, <laughs> I had to double check like four times that I didn't put the word selfish. And when I was typing, I needed to make sure that, you, you ever have spell check? Like anticipate and change it, right? Or, or my phone is guilty of this all the time. Right where it's anticipating the word you're going to do, and it pops a word in there, and then I go back, and I look later, and I'm like, what did I say? Right? Like, if you ever get a text message from me, and you're like, I'm not sure that sounds like what Brian really meant, ask me if the autocorrect got, you know, monster got to me. Because I've, I, I have gotten so easy at... Oops. Exactly. It's like thinking before it comes out of your mouth, right? So be selfless, not selfish in motives. What am I talking about? Well, this passage said, if you harbor bitter envy, if you harbor selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it, don't deny it. That kind of wisdom uh, does not come from heaven, but is earthly and unspiritual and demonic. It, where you have envy and selfish ambition, you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. And the word pure here is a, a word we often associate with the subject of, of, of sex or sexuality. And, and I, I just want to tell you, in this context, that's not what it's referring to. In others, it does. But in this context, this word is a direct, a direct reference back to bitter envy and selfish ambition. It's saying that there is not mixed 
stuff going on inside of you. And it mixed motives, if you will. That in your relationships, you're not coming at it from a mixed motives perspective. Where you go, well, you know, I do love you, but at the end of the day, I also really care most about myself. I mean, yes, I love you. Of course I love you. I'm your pastor. I have to love you. But really, the person I'm really concerned about is me. That sort of mixed... That didn't feel very good, by the way, for me to say that, didn't it? Did it? I'm your... Yes, I'm your pastor. I have to love you. Right? See how mixed motives end up being very noticeable and therefore detrimental to our relationships. Proverbs says, Proverbs 18.1, that an unfriendly man pursues selfish ends and defies all sound judgment. In the end, I really believe this is telling us that we need more purity. And by the way, where is a removal of selfish ambition and bitter envy going to come from in my life? It's not going to come from my relationship with you, quite honestly. It's going to come from my relationship with Jesus. And so it's Jesus I need to transform me to make me into a more selfless person in my motives. Does this make sense? I hope it does, because I say it all the time. I, I feel like a broken record sometimes, but it's something I need to hear over and over and over. I also hope you're used to hearing that by now because we've got to say the same thing about all three of the rest of these points. Number two, be reasonable in expectations. Reasonable in expectations. The word I'm focusing in on here is in verse 17 where it says that wisdom that comes from heaven is considerate. Peace-loving is there. We'll come back to peace-loving in the weeks ahead. We'll come back to peacemaking in the weeks ahead. But here I want to see the word considerate. The word considerate means it could be translated a lot of ways, but it could be reasonable or fair or equitable or willing to yield without being too strict or reasonable in demands. It's a word that is often used to describe God. This particular Greek word is used in... Um, trying to make this make sense. Using the Septuagint. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Not everybody spoke Hebrew in Jesus' day, right? And so they had taken the Old Testament and translated it into the Greek of the modern day, the Koine Greek that everybody spoke that the New Testament is written in. And this word is used in that book, the Septuagint, the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. It is used to describe God as king on many, many occasions. And the reason it is used to describe God there is because God has a sense of love's leniency that is a king. He is still gentle and kind, although in reality, he has every reason to be just punitive or stern towards us and our sin. He is often marked by a certain quality where he is fair. That's this word considerate. So I need, like Jesus, to be selfless in my motives. I need to be reasonable in my expectations. Number three, be approachable in my attitude. Approachable in my attitude. Obviously, this tells us to be humble. We've already talked about that. 
in previous weeks. But it also tells us to be submissive. Submissive is a word that we're not real wild about today because it conjures up images of do what I say and it conjures up images of something perhaps like slavery that obviously we would see as wrong. But this is a legitimate relational word that back then carried a very specific kind of meaning. It relates to a certain quality of humility where a person is teachable or compliant or approachable. That it is the opposite of being obstinate and self-seeking. That there is in this submissiveness a willingness even a readiness to yield. And so I described that as being approachable in my attitude because people know when I'm approachable and when I'm not. I've worked with a lot of pastors over the years. I've worked for some. I've worked with some. Some have worked for me. I would not describe every pastor I've worked with over the years as approachable. We all know the attitude when we have a boss that lives in the world of I'm better than you or I never want to see your face. And that attitude is a death knell for relationship, for trust. So be selfless in my motives. Can't do that without Jesus. Be reasonable in my expectations. I'm pretty good at being unreasonable on my own. I need Jesus to be reasonable. Be approachable in my attitude. And by the way, all of these describe grace at some level. This is all about how to be more gracious. Number four, be fair in how I treat everyone. Be impartial in how I treat everyone. Impartial and sincere are the words I'm focusing on here. The word impartial means without partiality. Thank you, dictionary. It means without variance. It means without distinguishing. We, we, would, we would say fair, or at it, it, some level, we might say without judgment or judgmentalism. At some very distinct level, this word could easily be clearly telling us that there's no place for the isms that you hear about so much in our world in the Christian life for sexism, for racism, for classism, that sense of I'm going to treat you different when you're rich as opposed to when you're poor. Again, I would suggest to you, have you experienced a church where the isms sort of rule the day? It's not good. It's not healthy. And it's not Jesus-honoring. And so in my notes, I wrote, okay, I'm going to be fair and impartial in how I treat everyone. So particularly, what about people who believe different than me? How am I treating them? Maybe they're not a Christian. 
Maybe they're straight up atheist or agnostic. Maybe, maybe they're frankly, maybe they're Buddhists. Maybe, maybe they believe in Islam. How am I treating them? Now again, this I've talked a lot about friendship, but this principle particularly. Why would someone outside of the faith in Jesus want my Jesus if all they get from me is either classism or racism or sexism or something of that nature? I also wrote in my notes, you would expect me to write this because I say it fairly often, what about people who vote different than me? Am I at least fair in how I represent the beliefs of people who believe different than me? Because, you know, I, I watch the news channels, all right? In fact, I watch several of the news channels. If I really want to know the real story, I read a little bit of the one on the far right and the one on the far left and some of those a little bit in the middle, which is harder and harder to find. And I try to discern truth out of the bias of all of those places. But one of the things I see all the time on the extremes of the news channels is an unfair representation of what the other side is really meaning. What about people who really are different than me in terms of race, in terms of gender, in terms of income? How would you feel about Jesus if Jesus said, I've come not to call the righteous to repentance, but the rich. I've come to call the rich. We go, yeah, the rich need to repent. But what if what he meant was, I've just come to save rich people? Got a problem with that? What if Jesus said, hey, I'm, you know, men are jerks. I'm just here to save the women. Women are going, are you you saying heaven could be all ladies? What if Jesus said, I'm going to save only the Jews but none of the Gentiles. Which is sort of the impression that a lot of people had back here in the, in the first half of the book. That God hates everybody else, but he loves us. And we tend not to hear Jew-Gentile as a racial distinction, but it very much is. The reality is, Jesus loves all people, Period. So we're commanded to do the same. And so the question I'm asking myself, if I want to be more like Jesus, is how can I be fair and how I treat all of them? Selfless in motives, reasonable in expectations, approachable in attitude, fair in how I treat everyone. In the end, gracious as Jesus is gracious. You need more of that in your life? All right, I want to end our service. We always end with two prayers. Maybe you would pray one or both of these prayers with me. The first prayer is a prayer of salvation. If you need Jesus today, and you recognize that you're not these things, and maybe for the first time ever you would say, I, that man who died on that cross, I need that man in my life, that God-man. Maybe for the first time ever you'd say, I need forgiveness from God. The reality is he makes it freely available. He paid for it. 
It's free to you and me, not to him. Maybe you'd pray with me like this, dear Jesus. I know I don't deserve you. I know I fall way short. But please forgive my sins. Please enter into my life. Change me from the inside out. Be my God. Take away all the things I make into little gods. And make me more like you, Jesus. Not just 